Welcome back to the podcast, episode 100 of the Noel Kassler podcast. We made it, folks. Two years worth of podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for all the support, all the t-shirts you purchased, and all the kind comments. Um, it's been a minute, but uh, I'm back here and uh, broke out the McAllister, one of my favorite guitars, as you've heard. <laughs> Um, got a little band-aid on my forehead, that's why I'm wearing a hat. For those of you watching on YouTube, had a little, uh, cancer thing taken off my, uh, forehead last week, and, uh, or yesterday, rather. It's been a couple weeks I've been dealing with it, but, uh, it hurts. I, I can't raise my eyebrows, so I'm gonna not get excited, okay? <laughs> I'm gonna try to do an hour of political talk without getting excited. Good luck. But, uh, you know... I feel like we're in a period of overload, right? There, there's that term of flooding the zone. You know, it kind of, uh, it's akin to what Naomi Klein was writing about. I don't know if you ever read her book about like the shock doctrine and stuff. You know, there's so much crazy stuff going down that we're, we're, we're losing sight of it, right? Just in the past few weeks. I mean, take the Trump town hall, which we'll get into, but... In that same week, you found out that Kristen Cinema was going and running marathons and writing it off to her campaign, right? She, she would go run the Boston Marathon and then, you know, hold an event with some kind of private donor and then write, you know, the whole week's stay at the Ritz-Carlton off and stuff. You're talking about just, you know, outright grifting and, and lying and doing it through your congressional campaign. And it comes out and you don't even like hear about it because so many other bad things are happening. You know, and that's a chaos agent that we have amongst us in the Democrats, just as we had the woman down in North Carolina who just voted with the legislator to have this draconian, you know, abortion ban overriding their governor. So, you know, that stuff is dangerous. And those sort of bad actor chaos agents are deeply implanted into the American political landscape at this point. And, and that's what terrifies me the most because it's the ones you're not even thinking about and the actions that, you know, that are being taken at the local level, like Harris County, for example, in Texas, you know, they passed a law that they don't have to honor the election results of Harris County. They did it through, you know, a technical clause saying like any county with more than 3 million people in it, which is Houston, right? <laughs> it's the most populous place in, in Texas. So they don't outright say, you know, cause Houston is predominantly, you know, has, has more immigrants and African-Americans than the rest of our state. We're not gonna honor their votes, but that's what they're gonna do. And I think during the next election, it's gonna be very scary when all that stuff comes at us at once. And I feel like we had a preview of that last week and, and this week, even this morning, you had Marjorie Taylor Greene, you know, 
offering articles of impeachment against Joe Biden and, and Secretary Mayorkas and Merrick Garland, you know, just like a crazy stunt, you know, at which she also took the time to say she felt threatened by Representative Bowman, Jamal Bowman, who's from, from Brooklyn, you know, who calls these people out on their BS all the time in person because he's from Brooklyn, you know? He's a smart, caring guy, former high school principal. He's caring about these issues the way most adults should, right? With the interest of protecting our children because they're getting slaughtered in schools. So he's calling out the hypocrites that pose with the AR-15s in their campaign ads and Marjorie Taylor Greene was like, I feel threatened by him. You know, he's a big, scary black guy. And calling me a white supremacist is like using the N-word. No, it's not, you know? And the N-word came from white supremacists. It came from the cracker-ass country that we've had for so long and that we somehow thought would just go away. And it never really did, but we sort of wrote it off. You know, those of us who didn't have to spend a lot of time on the road didn't really understand, you know, if you're from New York or California or an East Coast state, you don't really get what it's like, you know, in, in middle America or, you know, southern states. As I've said before on this podcast, like you, you go work in a venue and you spend time talking to like a white security guard backstage in Indiana or something, which I would do after the Obama election. And I could not believe how openly racist so many Americans were, white Americans. I mean, these guys would use the N-word to me, you know? And, uh, and I'd freak out. I'd be like, what are you doing? <laughs> I was at his inauguration. I love President Obama. I hate racism. I hate backwards, ignorant people. I understand why you may be that way, because you've been fed a bunch of lies your whole life, you know? But, and your parents probably thought Reagan was some good guy, and you probably believe the BS that, you know, African Americans are minorities or living large off of your tax dollars. It's simply not true. It's mostly white people that are getting welfare, right? It's mostly veterans that are getting SNAP program, food assistance. It's hardworking people, just like you, dude. So why are you trying to hate on them? Because you're getting manipulated from some billionaire who wants to put a conservative politician in your district because he knows he owns that guy. He knows when it comes down to a choice between putting in a new chemical plant that's gonna poison your kid's water and doing the right thing, you're gonna to be too stupid to know what's up because he waved a flag in front of you and said he'll protect your whites, you know, your rights to own guns and the whites <laughs> Freudian slip, right? You know, and go after, you know, the welfare queens, right? As Reagan so, you know, famously coined the term, speaking about a woman in Detroit. It was all lies. It was an elderly African American woman, and that is what kickstarted his surge in popularity in the Republican Party, and they've all followed the model ever since. You know, Lee Atwater, who was a campaign strategist, you know, real kind of dark arts guy, like a Rick Wilson type now. You know, Rick Wilson's a guy who got Max Cleland kicked out of, of Congress, a Vietnam vet who'd lost his legs, you know, who had to spend hours every day just getting ready to start his day and was a brilliant legislator and served with honor and he was replaced by Saxby Chambliss, you know, a rich asshole who wanted the seat because big business wanted the seat. And they hired a mercenary like Rick Wilson, you know, and he got him kicked out. And, and obviously, you know, Rick went on to, you know, 
fight against Trump as long as you gave him $60 million. <laughs> him and the rest of the Lincoln's project, they ran their own kind of scam in the last election. And I know they became popular and have a lot of cool tweets. And I've interviewed Rick on a podcast. I got no beef with him, but you know, Steve Schmidt, these are the guys that engineered that stuff. Steve Schmidt's the guy who gave you that idiot who thought she could see Alaska, you know, Russia from her home, her, her back porch or whatever she said. The guy that McCain picked, the girl that McCain picked. I can't even think of her goddamn name now, but you know who I'm talking about. She was like the archetype character for what we're seeing now. What, what was her name? Pretty, you know, she looked like, uh, what's her name on SNL? But, uh... You know, my point is, you know, that's what they do. The, the strategists and the power base in the Republican Party, you know, have dossiers on the kind of stuff that will affect conservative white Americans in the suburbs and the exurbs on a visceral level. And they play that game, that fear, that racism every time. And then these guys vote against their own interests. And then the country gets all messed up. And then a Democrat comes in and cleans it up, right? but he can't clean everything up in four years or eight years. So a lot of that stuff remains and the things happen and things get bad. And then the Republicans are able to flip that, you know, the bad stuff that happens back on the Democrats, even though their policies created it, they're able to flip it back on the Democrats and, and win re-election. It's this seesaw thing that's been going up and down for 40 years at this point. And, you know, it's awful. And, and now we're, we're, we're sort of doing brinkmanship with the debt ceiling limit. I was on a call with, with Vice President Harris today at the White House that they did with some, you know, people that they call leaders in the, in the community in outreach. I'm not, you know, I'm not a leader by any chance, but, you know, you guys know I got to go there and I, got, I get looped in on these things and they're just giving us the director of policy, the director of budget. They're just giving us sort of the internal talking points. And, you know, v, VP Harris, who I, I greatly admire, Kamala Harris, was on the call and she spoke for about 10 minutes. And, uh, you know, it's staggering to think about what's going to happen. If, if the GOP is allowed to not raise the debt ceiling, you know, to default on our, our bills on January 6th or 1st. I, I don't know exactly when it is, but uh, it's uh, January, June, pardon me. See, I'm, I'm trying to, you know, I, I was under the knife yesterday. <laughs> they had to take this thing out twice. It's Mohs surgery. I'm sure some of you guys have had it, but uh, it was a long day. So anyway, you know, my point is I don't think people realize how catastrophic it's going to be if we default on our debt. You know, your car payments, your mortgage, all that stuff becomes a lot more expensive. Banks get in trouble. You know, people get fired. Millions of people get fired. People go out of business overnight. It's a dangerous situation, completely unprecedented. It's never happened before. We've, we've raised the debt limit over 70 times. We did it three times under Trump. Trump himself ran up 25% of the debt that we're talking about, right? That the GOP's complaining about under the guise of being fiscally conservative. They're not talking about their guy created 25% of the debt, right? How long's the US been around? Like 300 years or something? 25% was you know, was put on the tab by that dude in four years. The guy who spent $150 million golfing, that he poured that money into his own golf clubs while he was president. Did the GOP complain about that? 
Did they bitch when he was getting on Air Force, Air Force One every weekend and flying down to Mar-a-Lago so he could walk around and get clapped at by a bunch of ignorant idiots that pe- spent money to get access to the president and a bunch of foreign operatives and <laughs> Chinese spies as they like to, you know, throw around the term. They were all there at Mar-a-Lago. It was a grifter's buffet. Eric Trump was telling people in the food line over the Christmas holiday that his dad was going to get ready to take out, you know, the Iraqi general that we assassinated. You know, they were giving away state secrets like it was a party. You know, it's like if I got to go backstage somewhere and then told my buddies about it, like, hey, man, you wouldn't believe what they had, <laughs> you know, like that. That's kind of what the, the, the Trump family did to being in the White House. They weren't there to serve this nation. They weren't there to, to enact policy and care about geopolitical events. They were there to line their pockets, to steal everything they could, which was the same way they were on Celebrity Apprentice, by the way. They would steal all the power bars off the craft service table at the end of the day. And the Twizzlers, Eric Trump, Trump would take all the red Twizzlers. That's why I called him Twizzler Trump, if you guys remember, on Twitter. You know, they, they asked for per diems. Imagine being a billionaire son and asking for a per diem. And Eric, uh, not Eric, but Don Jr., scrump as I call him, got busted twice for double dipping on per diems. Like, I didn't get my per diem. Can I get it again? We're talking about 100 bucks cash. You're the scion of a billionaire, right? You guys have your name on half the buildings in New York City at this point, right? What do you need the $100 that's meant to feed crew members, you know? But that's how they are, and that's how they were in the government. And the rest of the GOP saw that and said, sign me up, buddy. I'll take some of that grift. You know, and, and the sort of people behind the scenes, your Koch brothers, your Leonard Leos, the people that sort of anoint the oligarchs, were all too happy to send in this latest, latest series of clowns to D.C. Because Trump showed them that a major distraction was a major asset. And I used to make this analogy about Trump. He was like somebody who walked into a store and flopped down on the floor and pretend to have a seizure or something. Foam's coming out of his mouth. He's freaking out. So everybody runs over to see what's going on. And then, you know, Ivanka and Jared slip behind the counter and empty the cash register. That's sort of the model of the GOP. That's what they're doing. You know, it's like, hey, look at Nancy Mace. Look at MTG. Look at Bobo. You know, look at Clay Higgins, who manhandled a kid yesterday on the Capitol grounds. I don't know if you saw the video, but he's pushing this kid physically, assault and battery. The kid could make a case for it. You know, he's a member of Congress. He's putting his hands, you know, on some kid, some child journalist. You know, it's like 20-something, like not a kid kid, but, you know, a young man, obviously, and not somebody that a grown-ass adult should be putting his hands on, especially adult with the title of representative, U.S. representative behind his name. But he knew it would be a clip for him, and he was trying to impress Bobo, because they're all tripping over themselves to be the next suitor for Lauren Boebert, now that she's leaving her husband, and by the way, excoriated everybody on Twitter yesterday to give them their privacy. And if you remember, her husband whipped his junk out at a bowling alley in front of a bunch of teenage girls some years ago, one of which was Lauren Boebert, who later went on to marry the guy. So the dude's a freak. He can't stay out of the headlines in Colorado, and he's getting dumped, just like MTG dumped her husband that you know she cheated on in the back of a strip mall gym with a tantric sex guru. 
all true. <laughs> Nothing I just said is untrue. But these ladies got to D.C. and they, you know, they started palling around with their fellow GOP congressmen because it's all a big grift. Marjorie Taylor Greene was worth like a million and a half bucks before she, you know, when she entered Congress in, in January of 2020. Now she's worth like $38 million and nobody can explain how she got such a return on her investments. Like where did that money come from? That's a big difference. There's a big difference between a million and a half bucks and almost 40 million in four years. That's an enormous amount of money. And nobody's asking that. Nobody's asking why her opponent left town in the middle of the night he resigned from running for office and booked it out of Georgia. Overnight, she moved into his district, ran unopposed, and won. And now she's running the GOP for all intents and purposes. She's the figurehead, the intellectual leader of the GOP. And it's maddening. But when you look at the big picture, you see, oh, she's there for a reason, and she's getting her taste. You know, her $40 million is a, is a fraction, is a probably 10% of the 400 million or 4 billion that somebody's going to make when they vote, you know, on what that person wants done in their home state. It's just like Lauren Boebert, her 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 wealth increased too cuz she sits on the natural resources committee, right? That's the committee you want to be on if you want to drill in Colorado, if you want to run a mine, right? You want somebody who's favorable to you. And politics has always worked that way. What's different now, you know, that was always pork barrel politics, right? We, we're all used to that. There's nothing new in that, right? Politics was always like, I want to have power. I need wealthy people to support me to get that power. I will do favors for the wealthy people and try to sell it to my constituents as best as possible. That's kind of ground game level politics. It's always been that way. It was traditionally, you know, the politics side was sort of done by blue blood Ivy League folks, you know, and it was done in the back of the university club or, you know, the Harvard club or, you know, it was sort of done in a mahogany room over a brandy snifter, right? And it played out in a civilized fashion. And by the time anybody really understood what was going on, it was too goddamn late and they were too powerful to do anything about it. You know, that's how GE got to pollute the Hudson Valley and the Hudson River, you know, for its whole career and pretty much every other industry. You know, that is our political system. What changed was Citizens United allowing, you know, enormous amounts of cash to fund these candidates. Then you could get these wacky dark horse candidates that normally wouldn't have paid their dues coming up through that system. They could now get in there and they could get enormous amounts of money behind them like an MTG or somebody and nobody had ever heard of these people and all of a sudden they were in Congress, you know, or the U.S. Senate. And that's where it got scary because that's where basically the billionaire class had all control. You never need, you no longer needed the pipeline of sort of party bosses and building local support and working your way up and being in the state legislature and then running for your, you know, the house seat. and. That, that all bets were off. You could go from, you know, Meth Lab, Georgia, you know, where George, you know, MTG's from, to Congress. And in her first day there, she was making videos in her hotel room complaining how she couldn't carry a gun around D.C. and couldn't work out properly because all the gyms were closed because we were still at the height of the COVID crisis, you know. 
So she right away knew, like, my job is to become a social media star. And she kept pushing the envelope to the point that she achieved that rather qu quickly, right? Because it was so outrageous and she was such a troglodyte that we hadn't seen before. You're like, who is this leathery D. Snyder looking, or, you know, Vince Neil? She looks like she sings in a Motley Crue backup band to me, right? But like you were like, who is this putrid, like vile thing with this ignorant sort of timbre in her voice? You know, she sounds stupid. She sounds like somebody who's complaining to you at a drive-in that there's onions on her hamburger and she asked for no onions, right? If you've ever worked a service industry job, you know that sort of entitled, whiny, ignorant tone of voice, you know, and she exemplifies that. And, and, and the, you know, the sort of media couldn't resist making her a star. And then she held on to that position long enough that real established, you know, media, the Tiffany Network, CBS, 60 Minutes said, we're going to fly down there and do a puff piece and anoint her. And they did. And then the very next day, she started saying she wanted to impeach Biden, right? And now she's controlling the party. But behind the scenes, you know, the wealthy people that want her to be a placeholder for autocracy are getting a huge return on their investment, right? And that's what we need to think about. Like, how deep does this go? How deep is the corruption that CNN could bring in Chris Licht and do 70 minutes of prime time on Donald Trump uninterrupted? You know, Caitlin Collins tried to push back but she was no match for him. He knew it. That's why he agreed to have her. She's pretty. She looks like a sorority girl from Ole Miss or something, or Alabama, I guess that's where she's so famously from, you know, or went to college. And, you know, she worked for the Daily Caller. She had no problem promoting George Soros anti-Semitic screeds on Fox News prior to her anointment by CNN, you know? And I've really got no beef with her. She's entertaining. She's pretty to look at. Right, But she's got no place standing across from a guy who tried to overthrow the government because he didn't like the results of an election, who's under upteen indictments as we speak and hopefully has some more coming down the pipeline. Who was she to go up against him? Right, And he'd been convicted the day before in a civil trial of rape, of raping E. Jean Carroll. I know E. Jean, I know Robbie Kaplan, I know Lisa Birnbach, who te testified, you know, in the case. Lisa's, you know, I've been on Lisa's podcast. Lisa knew about it that night. E. Jean called her way back when. Lisa wrote the piece for Vanity Fair, I believe, back in the 90s. If you've ever seen the picture of Ivanka sitting on Trump's lap in front of the, the fountain, it's really unseemly. She's got a mini skirt on. She's sitting on her daddy's lap. It's a really gross picture. Lisa was the reporter, that, and that photographer took that. That was for Lisa's piece. I think it was in Vanity Fair. It might have been People Magazine. There was a separate reporter from People Magazine who got attacked by Trump in Mar-a-Lago in a bedroom, as you know, in a nursery room, because Melania just had his kid. Like the the dude is a scumbag, is my point. And being that it was the day after he'd been convicted of assaulting a woman in Bergdorf Goodman, which he completely had, who was a very famous woman at the time. So his bullshit, like, I don't know her, never met her, was obviously a lie. He thought she was his wife in the deposition, as we all know, right? The fact that the day after that, you reward that guy, the guy who's been a sexual predator for decades, you know, with, with a comely female host in a pretty pantsuit, 
to talk, you know, to, to meekly represent sort of the leftist media, and then he can just talk over her and make her look silly all night, and the audience applauded wildly, right? It was misogyny in action. It was a beatdown of the idea that a woman could stand up for her rights and hold a man like Trump accountable. That's what it represented, right? And Chris Lick knew that. He told Trump backstage, have fun out there, before he sent him out there, right? And Trump had a blast. Even Trump couldn't have seen how well it was going to go. And then Trump got on Air Force One, his new 757, you know, a refurbished one that he got his campaign MAGA contributors to pay for, you know, <laughs> redoing for him. And he played It's a Man's World and flew back down to Florida, you know. That's insane. That's handing him a win. And if you watched it and were horrified, like I'm sure you did and I did and I wrote a substack about it. You know, I don't want to rehash it. It's old news already, but it goes to my point. It was the beginning of like, oh, here we go again. It's going to be a year and a half of this, and then Trump's going to be president again. And if you don't think he can be president again, you haven't paid attention since 2016, because he probably has a better shot this time than he had those other times, right? 2020 was his weakest election. Right? Because we were just coming out of the pandemic. People had seen how outrageously evil and corrupt he was, you know, when he hid in the bunker of the White House and had him tear gas protesters, you know, to hold up a Bible. He'd sort of had all these stunts that kind of backfired. So even MAGA, you know, I think, you know, MAGA was behind him, but I think, you know, they were less less passionate probably at that point than they've ever been. Since then, they've had two years of sort of like, you know, Butressment, right? Of, of 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 like the GOP people that I just described constantly, you know, Jim Jordan, these people constantly, you know, saying it was a Russia hoax, saying Trump was targeted. You have CNN who's now saying like the Durham report exonerates Trump, which it doesn't. John Durham's report was a scam. He spent four years and millions of dollars of taxpayers' money, found nothing, flew around Europe with Bill Barr stuffing his face with Carpaccio, trying to find dirt on Biden for the next election. We're paying for it, right? Comes up empty-handed after four years, hands in a 300-page report, which is complete bullshit, there's no way to spin it unless you're on Fox News and you're an idiot. And the first thing that happens is Jake Tapper spins it, you know, as an exoneration for Trump and bad news for the FBI. Completely bullshit. Completely not what it said. Just like when Bill Barr came out and obfuscated on behalf of the Mueller report and gave his own summation six weeks before the rest of us got to read it. And instantly, Chris Zalila I'm never going to say this goddamn name. Chris Zeliza. <laughs> That's as close as I'm getting. You know who I'm talking about, the legal correspondent kind of, you know, conservative dicky guy that they like at CNN so much. They had Rick Santorum on there for the whole Trump administration. Santorum, you know? Look up what Dan Savage used to, you know, call Santorum. Um, but I digress, right? But Chris Zeliza. And, uh, you know, these guys, they're, they're well-practiced in sort of manipulating the headlines to benefit Trump, to benefit the conservatives. Because most people, you know, if it's not Fox News that's outright lying, are going to get their headlines and their news from a crawl on CNN as they're walking across, 
the airport to get to Aunt Annie's and grab another pretzel before their flight back to Des Moines. And they're going to see that headline. And they're going to be like, ah, Trump was exonerated again, another witch hunt. And then he gets on CNN and, you know, gets to do five, ten-minute screeds on why he's the victim. And they go uninterrupted. They're, you know, they're accented by audience applause. And from a technical level, level, even that audio was sweetened, mean pumped up with compressors and stuff, so it sounds really loud and jumps through your TV screens. That's not how an audience sound really sounds. Like you have mics in the audience and it's like room tone and you have to really pump it up if you want it to be exciting at home. It's called a sweetener. It's actually an audio roll on a live show. So like if you're watching the Tonys or the Kennedy Center Honors, there's a guy whose job it is is to just take that signal from the audience and make it pop in the mix as much as possible. And that's what was happening on that CNN show. And what that does is it gives you a psychological feeling when you're watching it. Like, ah, he just scored a point. He just scored a point. And that's what it would have been like. If you were partial to Trump, you know, you probably aren't open to hearing any new news. But to say you were on the fence and you watched that thing, you would have a visceral sense of, of, of the audience clapping and laughing that this guy's telling the truth. Oh, he must have won that point because you barely heard Caitlin trying to stop him and she made the mistake of moving on. You can't move on. That's the mistake we're making as a country in many ways. We keep moving on, right? If Biden's done anything wrong, it was sort of like the idea to have business as usual and put Merrick Garland in there and, and not really go hard on what had just happened, try to get back to people trusting the government. That ship has sailed. We were in a new world. You should have put Sally Yates in there or somebody who was going to go in and be like, hey, if you were appointed during Trump's administration, raise your hand, okay? Get your shit and get out of the building. You know, when I sort this all out, you can come back but you're not staying. Chris Ray ain't staying. He was appointed by Trump, right? Now Trump's attacking him and the FBI. That's why you don't leave him there. Because even the people that you think were legit, like career people were put there for a reason by Trump and he'll use them on either side of the coin. They'll be an asset to him until they are, are not. And then he'll turn on him. And by leaving him in there, you allow him to do that. It's like an unexploded ordinance, you know? You gotta go in there with a sweeper, with a minesweeper and get it out of there and clear the field and stay off it for a while, lest anything else blow up. But that's not what we did. We don't even know who bombed, you know, who put the pipe bombs on the Capitol on January 5th, the night before. MTG obviously matches the description and the video we've all seen, same gait, same shoes, She's tweeted some things, which I called her on years ago, where she, she had said, I forget exactly, you know, like who had, who had put the pipe bombs there on January 5th? And, and you know, we, they were only discovered on January 6th, you know? So she, she, she was sort of revealing that she had some inside information. We never learned why Lauren Boebert was given private tours, why all these others were, right? We were sort of like, hey, we're going to move on now. And you know, Biden and Harris have done a great job of passing wonderful legislation. You know, the infrastructure bill, right? The, 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 the interest, you know, the, the, the Inflation Reduction Act. You know, all these kind of things put our economy back on course. We have the lowest unemployment we've had for black Americans. You know, there, there's an equitable recovery happening in America 
three years out from a global shutdown. So that in and of itself is a miracle of management, of wonkish, serious, you know, put my nose to the grindstone, listen to the smartest people I can find, you know, make some hard choices and get it done. Management, right? So they're, do, they're kicking that ball through the goalposts every day. It's a miracle what they're accomplishing. What they're not doing and what the Department of Justice didn't do is read the room properly, is understand that a lot of Americans weren't able or ready to move on from January 6th. And if we don't address it and hold the truth up to them in a way that's sort of undeniable, if we don't solve this issue and clearly explain what happened before the next election, they're going to use it against us like jujitsu. And that's what's happening now right? Judo, rather. Judo is when you use the weight of your opponent against them. That's sort of what's happening when Trump is like, hey, these guys are heroes that are being held in D.C. jails for attacking the Capitol. They're being mistreated. They're being horribly, you know, punished for just being patriots and good-hearted people. And he was getting claps for that. He said he would pardon them. These guys were deficit defecating in the halls of Congress. They were beating cops to death with flagpoles you know, and fire extinguishers. You know, they were trying to find Nancy Pelosi and AOC so they could kill them, let alone Trump's own vice president who they wanted to hang, who's always wanted to be hung and never was, you know, and missed his opportunity. But, uh, you know, Trump's able to spin that. Trump's a master of that. He has oppositional defiance disorder. Anything you say to him, he's got to say the opposite. And that's actually serving him in this political realm because his base let's face it these guys are dumbasses they're so ginned up on hatred at this point they don't care all they want is the red meat of liberals are bad lgbtq people are grooming my kids democrats are trying to take my guns you know it's the same pablum over and over and they eat it up right because it plays into the world that they're living in that their entire culture defines, as I've been trying to say every week, drive through a city uptown, a, a town up, upstate here in New York, you know, the streets are lined with, these are our veterans on flagpoles. We didn't used to do that, you know? That's not a diss on the veterans, but you didn't used to sort of have these pictures, you know, that are like of the person on the flagpole with a flag, you know? It's meant to give you the image, this is a conservative patriot town. You know, this is a pro-cop town. This is a pro-military town. And who co-ops that ideology and iconography, right? The Republicans. Because then when it's time to run, they say, hey, the Dems are weak on vets. The Dems are weak on crime. Vote for me. And what happens is the opposite, right? The GOP is the ones who are trying to cut veterans' benefits right now. That's the only thing they're offering to do. McCarthy, besides putting in, you know, more work requirements on SNAP and stuff, which, by the way, was done under Clinton. They've always been there. They're a dumb idea when he tried to do it. They're an even dumber idea now. If you need help, you should get help. You don't have to go out and work a few hours a week for your health care or the food you need to feed your kids. Take that time and work on yourself, you know? You don't have to go do some stupid thing sweeping a floor somewhere. Nobody needs that. You know, you need to feed people. You need a minimum 
basic income in this country if you're born in it. And if you don't think that's right, you don't understand how much you're paying for not having that. If you think you care about crime and all these issues, try addressing the things that cause the crime. Try addressing the inequality and the injustice that African Americans face, that poor people face of all colors, right? You know, address the mental health issues and the addiction and all the healthcare issues and violence and all the stuff that stems out of trauma. And it's traumatic being poor. It's not easy. It's not some country song where we didn't have much, but we were growing some carrots in the backyard and daddy shot a squirrel and we all sang around the dinner table. That ain't what being poor is like in America. You're not going to subsist off of the land, you know? You're going to get preyed upon. You're going to go cash your check and somebody's going to take 10% of it just to cash it because you don't have a bank account. You know, you're going to get punished for being poor because nobody wants to go after the rich because the rich pick the leaders. They pick the politicians. You're not going to look at them. It came out this week that the IRS audits black people at a higher rate than white people. Now, black Americans don't have an outsized, you know, chunk of the wealth in this country. I don't think anybody would argue that, right? So why are they getting the outsized you know, amount of audits? They're, they're still a minority in terms of population. Why are they getting audited more than anybody else? Because the IRS is going to pick on people that they feel like won't punch back. You know, the federal government under conservative leadership you know, is picking on people that they should be helping because it appeals to the base. The meanness appeals to the base. That's why everything is trolling. Everything is snark. And that's what Trump was exemplifying in that town hall. It was just like a snark fest. And people loved it. And that's what I think the heart of the matter is. And that's what scared me the most is that Trump is a, you know, MAGA is a cult right now, right? It's a cult of personality, right? It, it's all run under Trump's personality. And what we saw in that CNN debate was Trump's personality. You know, it was like a reintroduction of here's the guy in his public form doing what he does best. And people are like, yeah, give me some more of that. I miss this guy. You know, and she wasn't armed with any facts to call him on anything. When they talked about the debt ceiling, she should have said they raised it three times under you and you contributed 25%, you know, of the national debt. What do you say about that? She meekly said, what do you, you know, you wouldn't say that if you were president or you didn't say that when you were president. And he goes, yeah, but I'm not president anymore. Wink, wink. And the audience loved it. Ha ha. No responsibility. Being an asshole. That's our guy. That big fat orange guy in the diaper. Need to get him back in D.C. so he can go golfing again. You know, that's what was so disgusting because you don't have to have a master's degree in media to know exactly how it was going to go. And that's how it went. When are we going to learn? And CNN was gloating about it the next day. You know, that was the maddening part, is that instead of saying, we really screwed up, we're sorry, guys, we did a disservice to democracy, and perhaps a really dangerous one, if we do have a default on the debt. No, they said, hey, who are you to judge us? You needed to see this, buddy. You know, Anderson Cooper, a socialite, you know, who, who at one time was, you know, 
a decent kind of people's journalist, right? That's what he was famous for is going to Cambodia and he did a great job during Katrina, you know? He made his bones doing good stuff. I like the guy. I worked on CNN Heroes from the time it was, in, you know, from its inception until I think 2018. I quit when they bailed on Kathy Griffin. I went back one other time as a favor to a friend, but you know, last time I was there, Carson has like a handler for his dog. You know, like he turned into total diva guy and, you know, I'm, I'm glad he's got kids now. As I said, I, you know, I, I got no problem with Anderson or who he is beyond like, what are you lecturing us for about living in a silo, bro? You live in a firehouse, man. You have a whole townhouse in the village. You know, you have more money than God and you've always had that. Your mom is Gloria Vanderbilt, bro. Your family is one of the original, you know, industrialists, right? Half of Carnegie Hill is your great-grandfather's old mansions, you know? So you grew up in limestone and prep schools, you know? So don't tell us we're in a silo and we needed to see Trump, but they got touchy, you know? And he was probably extra touchy because he also has a contract with 60 Minutes who did the puff piece on MTG. So they're like, hey, we're tired of the criticism, you know? Let us do our jobs. And their jobs are like hopping on a private jet at Teterboro and giving somebody who does not have the best interest of democracy at heart free airtime in sanitizing them and whitewashing them for the American people. And that's what they're doing. So don't get snippy when we call you on it because we've seen how this goes. We saw the Capitol almost burn on January 6th. We saw people attacking it and we're traumatized from that shit. We've never really dealt with that. You know, back to the Biden stuff, like, that was crazy. You know, the whole pandemic was crazy. The whole 2016 to 2020 was nuts. That's a period that is going to come to define many of our lives. There's a before and after, just like how you felt about 9-11 and stuff. You know, this even more so. Because this fractured the country. And you had to address that. You had to figure out a way right away, like, we got to glue this thing back together here. Because the meanness is taking hold. And the exploitation from the right knows no bounds. You know, there's no low they wouldn't sink to. Right? They defended him right after that, you know? Right after January 6th, they defended him. Kevin McCarthy flew down to Mar-a-Lago and kissed his ass. So even after that, even when you would hope that some of them would have had the guts to say, nah, I can't do it with this guy. I'm taking him out. I'm running against him. Like there's no freaking way I'm supporting that clown again. They all clammed up. They all supported him again, including Mike Pence, who he tried to kill. They all defied subpoenas. They all tried to protect him and shield him from the investigation, you know, which, which the January 6th committee did to their best of abilities, but without any teeth, right? Because all they could do was refer to the Department of Justice. And we're still waiting on Merrick Garland. It's like I, I always said, time is not on your side. Everybody's like, hey, they got to dot the I's and cross the T's. When you come for the king, you better make sure you get him. Screw that noise. If you can't find something Trump did illegal right now to charge him with, what, what, what good is it? because you're giving him the opportunity to get back into power. CNN's giving him the town hall. He'll take the rest of the goddamn country before you know it. And if they do default on the debt, God help us. And he basically told them that night, Trump did, these are your marching orders. You need to default on this thing. 
You know, that was very clearly in his mind and probably an objective of the evening for him. And that's terrifying, right? Because if they do that, as I said before, calamity that will, you know, be on par of, of, of what we saw in 2020 when the markets all went crazy at the beginning of the pandemic, right? We won't have the health aspect of it, but the economic stuff is what really freaks people out anyway. People will start shooting you, you know, over a loaf of bread in this country. <laughs> you know, we saw that, right? So if they do that, if they, if they sort of, you know, foist that kind of chaos on the American people, and now we got a year of economic calamity, that's gonna, you know, that's gonna set the playing field for Trump because that's what dictators do. I will restore you to glory and power and, you know, financial solvency, right? That's a big part of Hitler's story was obviously, you know, the, the deal that we made, you know, to end the World War I was completely messed up towards the Germans and some smarter people tried to say, <laughs> like, maybe don't do this, you know? This is the Treaty of Marseille. I don't remember the exact treaty. I'm too deep into this. You guys, you know, the thing they signed on the train, you know, that stopped the war. You know, that was like they, they, the terms that, that Germany had to accept forced them into sort of an economic humiliation that laid the groundwork for, for the extremism and xenophobia that... Adolf Hitler was able to tap into, and he borrowed a lot from the KKK. He borrowed a lot from eugenics, which came out of Yale University, you know? He borrowed a lot from what he saw in America and our issues with race. And it was like, if I could just meld this with the economic uncertainty and resentment, you know, and sort of let these people know that they're the chosen ones and pick a really good, you know, in their minds, like, easy to pick on villain, which is anti-Semitism, right? They picked on Jewish people and said, you know, the, the, the root of all your problems is, you know, this Zionist global kind of conspiracy. Does that sound familiar? Do you know what I mean? <laughs> That's the same thing the Republicans are now grasping at. It's history repeating itself, right? But you need the, the proper ingredients to bake this putrid cake, right? And all those ingredients are coming together and they see it. And that's why they're pushing it, right? So, so if we sort of get, you know, if, if the economy, if the American economy gets sort of decimated, because defaulting on our debt will be like an atom bomb, hits us overnight, you know, it's gonna cause a lot of chaos and a lot of hardship. If that's created, it's exactly like the sort of breeding ground for extremism to get worse, for anti-Semitism to get worse, and for Trump to sort of activate this army that he's building. That's why General Flynn was speaking down at Doral last weekend on an event that had actual Nazis on it. They were later canceled because Maddow did a piece on it. I'm sure you saw last week, but they were there and they're there next time <laughs> and their message is still being repeated. A little wink and the nod to like, we're not gonna let you, we're not gonna give you the clip this time because Eric Trump is there too, but their agenda was still there and represented. And then Trump called into a, you know, a Mike Flynn rally over the weekend with the same organization that he runs. It's like America First or whatever the hell it's called. It's hard to keep track of what all these things are called, by the way. <laughs> but uh, on the Dem side and the, 
Republican side. And they're all PACs, by the way. The money you're sending to the Dems, those are PACs too. Be careful about where you're sending your money. Be careful about any organization that's sort of trying to enrich its own media presence over actually doing something. You know, I, I send my money, what little I have, to, you know, charities that I know are going to feed somebody or a cat or a dog or something physical. I don't need ad buys, you know. We're, we're not in this place we are because there's not enough media attention on things. We're in the place we are because the media attention is getting manipulated and siphoned off by greed and anger is being exploited on both sides of the divide to enrich a few that are either channeling that anger for good or channeling that anger for wealth. And you need to look beyond that. You need to holistically look at the, the you know, look at the whole being. You know, look at what's going on and the meanness is on the march. And that's appealing to a psychological dynamic in the American people that is, I'd like to say, li been lying dormant. You know, I can, I can only speak about my own life. In New York, it was different in the 80s. New York was always a obviously very sort of kind of racially charged place, to put it mildly, right? You had Howard Beach, you had all these famous things in the 80s, but you didn't have people like in upstate New York where I live, like flying MAGA flags, you know, and the Blue Lives Matter crap on their cars. And this, you know, this like, I'm gonna get them before they get me attitude of arming up and military weapons. All of this crap is new. And the world hasn't seen it before, you know? And it's all being sort of like exacerbated by social media. As I've said before, Hitler didn't have YouTube channels. You know, he didn't have podcasts. He didn't have all these other ways to spread this bile, but the GOP has it, you know? And they have infrastructure because they have all these billionaires, you know, pumping tons of money. They own the Supreme Court, it, essentially, right? There's nine justices, they got six of them. You know, so we're in uncharted territory and how we proceed has to be very specific and, and, and infused with an awareness of what we're really facing. Not just more outrage, but real tactical, like this is what's going down. This is what we need to pay attention for. Because too, because my fear, and as I said at the top of this thing, like flooding the zone, all this stuff starts to slip past you and you become exhausted. Especially in the face of the human tragedies, the shootings, right? The shootings are the reason I, I haven't been able to do this podcast properly for the last month or so, because it's like, I can't talk about it for an hour and I can't not talk about it. Do you know what I'm saying? So I can only talk about it when I feel like I'm not gonna, add to the pain and the negativity but you know it's scary so when those stories eat up a few days not eat up that's not the right term when those stories rightly dominate a few days of coverage and then get sort of washed out back into this sea you have to think about the effect that has on you as a person you know the shooting in allen texas we saw babies murdered you know, people were sharing those videos it, it, thinking they were doing the right thing. They were not. It's not your child. You don't have the right to share that video. You know, you're only adding to the trauma by doing that. I understand your intention in doing it. I would not do that. I don't, I don't, I don't think anybody 
needs to see that. I think the think the people you think you're affecting by showing that don't care, and at at, at worst will be titillated by it. Nobody buys an AR-15 because they're not sure what it does to the human body. They're buying it specifically for what it does to the human body. And they have a political party saying it's your right to do that to anybody you want, especially blacks and immigrants or gays, to use their terms, you know? That's what we're facing, you know? People aren't, you know, they're trying to get a bloodthirsty kind of like attitude in the American people. And they're trying to get like, here's the, here's the bone we're going to throw you guys, you know, the common guys. It's going to be okay for you to take out a black guy if you feel threatened, if you need to. That's why they're celebrating this Daniel Perry or Penny or whatever the hell his name is. The guy in Texas who ran into the protesters is Daniel Perry. The guy who said, I'm going to go out and kill me some Black Lives Matters protesters and then rode his car into them and murdered one of them. That guy was Daniel Perry. I think it's Daniel Penny who strangled, you know, uh, Jordan Neely. I, I hope I'm getting the name right. There's a lot going on in my head right now. On the subway, the Michael Jackson performer. I've seen that guy perform dozens of times. That guy was a fixture on New York city subways he was in times square he did an awesome michael jackson and i worked with michael jackson <laughs> twice you know if not more times but <laughs> on the vmas and in the rock and roll hall of fame induction you know so like that guy was was a character and a performer and he brought vibrancy and artistic kind of life to new york city and then fell on hard times and was unhoused and mentally in anguish and was expressing that pain on a subway which is like becomes your living room if you're unhoused in new york city and homeboy from long island decided to sneak up behind him and put him in a chokehold and end his life and he's going to get charged with manslaughter as he should right but now that guy's a hero ron DeSantis jumped in the fray, used a George Soros smear and sent out a text and said, raise money for this guy. And they raised $2 million for him over the weekend, right? Because they're going to lift him up because that's the incentive. Hey, the common man can kill people under the GOP and we got your back. That's why that little fat kid, you know, no offense, we all struggle with weight. What's his name? The little chubby little high school kid. You know, I can't even think of his name. I don't even want his name in my brain. But you know, Kyle Rittenhouse, right? That's why that little punk weasel became a celebrity in the GOP. You know, the guy hadn't lost his baby fat. I'm not trying to fat shame or anything, you know. Trust me. I'm just, you know, I'm pissed off. I'm pissed off because I can see it happening. You can see it happening too. They're making heroes out of these guys. And that's what they'll give the common man. You can kill somebody and it'll be okay as long as it's not one of our own. You know what I'm saying? That's what they gave them after the Civil War. Hey, yeah, you might have lost the war, but lynch all you want. Pack a lunch. Show up on Sunday with the wife and kids. Ain't nobody going to hold you accountable. And that's what happened forever. For hundreds of years. And it's still happening. It's coming back. And they're trying to bring it back. That's what MAGA is. Bring us back to our worst instincts as a country, you know, where ignorant white folks can mistreat those 
that they view as less than them, them or those who, who have a more precarious position in our society than they themselves do, you know, which is the ultimate scam, right? Because the rich guys are controlling everything, you know. The dudes who were fighting in the Civil War were like poor southern like farmhands and stuff. They were getting sent into battle by dudes who went to West Point and had gold bayonets and shit and grew up in privilege. They weren't growing up in, you know, turkey taint Arkansas, right? But it was the turkey taint boys who they told to march across a field in Pennsylvania <laughs> into sudden death, right? And the rest of the guys go back and strategize and, you know, drink whiskey. You know, they're protecting wealth. That's a lot of what the political you know, scene in our country has always been about. Make the, give the exploited an enemy so they don't see who's exploiting them. That's the formula. And now that formula is infused with social media. It's infused with sort of trolls, unlike anything we've ever seen before. And people are getting off on that. And you can see the people out there in your lives. You see the guy who's less likely to let somebody in in traffic and beeps at him or moves aggressively or, you know, steps on his gas with his, ga you know, with his muffler pipe sounding like the Blitzkrieg's coming to town, you know? We're getting off on broken meanness, you know? Silence is under assault. Nobody has peace anymore, you know? I, I went out on Mother's Day and I was eating a place by Connecticut like a restaurant, you know, bar and grill kind of thing, right across from the Long Island Sound. Beautiful, you know, Sunday morning, beautiful little town. And like every other car that came by this place had, was jacked up, had the loud pipes, or it was somebody's motorcycle that was, you know, it sounded like the freaking space shuttle taking off. I know loud pipes save lives. You don't need them that loud, you know. You know what that does to babies and pets and you and me? Just that assault on our senses. You know, going to New York City now, I was there obviously yesterday, man. I, I couldn't even walk down York Avenue. Like the traffic and the soot is so bad. There's so many issues, industrialized issues that are going untreated, unremarked upon, that are, that are beating us down on a psychic cellular level. And it all takes its toll. And we have to like come to a place of peace. You can't just ignore it. You can't just let it happen. You have to fight about it, but you have to be aware of it. You know, we're getting past our beingness, right? We're getting past the sense of just being like okay with the world. We're getting this amped up aggression, and it's scaring me because a guy like Trump, you know, will exploit it all day long, and it's going to be too late. Watch the Waco series. I've been watching this Waco series on um, Showtime. It's really well done. You know, the, the first season is uh, obviously David Koresh and the story of Waco, and it has, uh, uh, is it E. Jean Smith, right? The great actress um, from Secession. Wonder, wonderful actress. I hope I got her name. J. Cameron Smith. I'm sorry, I was thinking E. Jean Carroll. J. Cameron Smith. We follow each other on Twitter. Married to one of my all-time favorite playwrights and uh, who made my, my favorite movie of all time. But uh, I'll talk about that next week. Um, but anyway, so Cameron Smith is in it. it. The guy who played 
possum in the remake of the the George and Tammy or the George and Tammy series that was on recently. I don't can't remember his name either. Wonderful actor. He's kind of the lead in it. But it tells that story. You know, it tells the story of sort of the obvious screw up by the government and the justice department at Waco and the ATF and and you know, the murdering all these people. And uh and that was like the fuel on the fire of the white supremacists. And sort of the second series is the aftermath, the trial and what happened in Elohim City and, you know, Timothy, Timothy uh, McVeigh and all these scumbags who went on to, you know, murder 168 people there at the Murrah building. The overtones for what happened then compared to now, and it's obviously why they made this piece, are not just striking and alarming, it's like terrifying. Because now there's like 538 groups of the kind of group that carried out the attacks in Oklahoma City, right? Then there wasn't that many. And that's, by the way, why FBI leaders and stuff have been saying forever, the greatest threat to America is white supremacists. That's why, you know, Biden said it at Howard University over the weekend. You know, it's a real threat and it's metastasized and they're out there, man. So a civil war isn't going to be like, you know, what I was just talking about. It ain't going to be two armies facing off with each other. It's going to be like a guerrilla war. You know, it's going to be, we blow up a Planned Parenthood center. We blow up this or that. We terrorize people. We shoot up a mall of immigrants, which the white supremacist guy did in Allen, Texas. And immediately the conservative media and Marjorie Taylor Greene tried to say he was Hispanic and had gang tattoos. Yeah, he had gang tattoos. He had a freaking swastika on his chest and an SS symbol. Same gang you belong to. <laughs> right, Marjorie? But they, they, they tried to sell it because it was embarrassing to them. You know, and the Texas governor tried to cover it up. And now you don't hear about it. They were successful, right? It didn't really stay long in the news cycle. They didn't have press conferences, you know? They followed the Uvalde model and we're, we're at like a year right now, as you're probably listening to this, it's in the next day or so, or just happened, from that tragedy. So there'll be a lot more of that, you know? If we don't stop it, if we give in to this kind of hate that they're pushing on us. So we got to be careful of the corporate interests that are going to do such an irresponsible thing like put Trump on CNN. Because we're at war already, right? It's like a soft civil war at this point. It hasn't turned into, you know, the kind of horror and anguish that it could be. But there's people out there itching for that to happen, you know. And if you can't see it, you're blind. And it's going to affect all of us. And we, we, we really have to take that seriously. All right, I'll shut up now. I've been ranting for an hour. I hope you could hear me okay. I've missed you guys. I'm going to try to do some fun stuff. I'm working on a new show now, so I'm going to try to do some live dates. Thank you, Kim, who bought a t-shirt last week. If you guys want a t-shirt, you can find them at noelcastler.com. Sign up for the Substack if you like the podcast and you want to support it. You can sign up for Substack. It's 12 bucks a month or it's free. 
and all the content is free so I'm not after your money I appreciate it when you send it to me but what I'm saying you can get either way so don't feel bad if you can't pay if you want to bring it on all right I'm gonna try to do more in season three trying to get it more professional you see I got the neon sign up there got some fancy lights I'll use the microphone next week when I can put headphones on but I hope it sounded good I hope I didn't bum you out. I hope I didn't rant too much. I just, you know, I wanted to hit those bullet points because it's like the flooding the zone thing is happening. And it's not that anybody who listens to this is tuning out or any American even has the luxury of tuning out. But we, we can't let these things keep slipping by because some of these things are very scary. And, and when, when you wake up to like, you know, another election morning, it, it's going to be pretty hard to, to stop them this next time, given that they haven't been stopped so far and that they're learning from their mistakes of last time. You know, the secession episode on Sunday kind of brilliantly summed that up, you know. So uh, I think we're all on the same page with that. That's what I'm talking about. Thank you for listening. Episode 100 of the Noel Castler podcast. Find me at noelcastler.com. Take care of yourselves. I love you guys. Thanks for listening. Peace. <laughs>